over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. Dr. Alistair Begg has been in pastoral ministry since 1975. After graduating from the London School of Theology, he served eight years in Scotland at both Charlotte Chapel and Edinburgh and Hamilton Baptist Church. In 1983, he became the senior pastor at Parkside Church outside Cleveland, Ohio. He has written numerous books and has heard daily and weekly on the broadcast Truth for Life. Well, welcome to the show, Alistair. Thanks for your time. Thank you very much for the privilege, Michael. Let's start with this. Uh, how long have you been teaching the Bible, Alistair? Well, in the context of a, of a local church, um, you know, I had a couple of opportunities between 75 and 77 when I was the assistant in Edinburgh. But after 77, um, for the last, up until now, however, however long that is, what, what is that, 42 years? 42 years. And you're only like 61, right? <laughs> I'm 67. But you look younger. That's you, you and Susan always seem to, you must be living right. Well, you know, somebody asked me the other day, what do you think? I said, I think genes, you know, I think genetics is, is, is probably the largest part of it. I agree. I had a grandfather who, who still looked a young man when he died, um, but uh, he, still, he still died. <laughs> he wasn't with Enoch, huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he, he was no more. He was no more. Yeah. Well, let, let's, okay, so, so you get 40-plus uh, years of uh, exposition and pulpit uh, opportunities. You travel abroad. You're on uh, thousands of stations and repeater uh, broadcast, and you are opening the Bible and teaching through it. Uh, where, where did you get this? Where, where, where did it get in your soul that you were going to be a Bible teacher slash expositor? Well, I never thought that I would be a Bible teacher slash expositor. You know, when I was when I was studying um, to sort of prepare to quote serve God. You know, in my, in my early twenties, when I had had my own little sort of revolution or crisis, I thought then that you know there were a number of ways that you could do this while maintaining your self respect uh, amongst amongst your friends that you went to school with. You know, so that. <laughs> So you could say, well, I'm involved in sports ministry, uh, music ministry, you know, whatever adjective. But the idea of actually being involved in pastoral ministry and becoming a pastor was not something that was uppermost in my thinking. And and I actually came to that along a line that um, finally made sense to me in a way that was both, on the one hand, a kind of death knell, and yet it was a it was a vista opening in front of me. And that was because I was doing stuff with youth. People, I was doing young people's events, going away for weekends and doing these little retreats and things. And one day I, I came back and I said to a group of uh, friends, and some of them were faculty members at the college, you know, I said, I don't like these things. And somebody said, why is that? And I said, well, 
I do like them. I said, I like them. But what I mean by that is I don't like going places on a Friday night, meeting a new group of people, and then come Sunday night, bidding them farewell and realizing that in the run of things, I'll probably never see them again. And one of the older members of the, of the group said, well, I think I know why that is. And I said, why is that? And he said, well, he said, I think it's because God has given you a pastor's heart. And then he said, you know, the evangelist has the ability to pick up and move on. And the, the, the pastor has to stay and see the thing through. And that was the first time that that really settled in my mind. And then, um, you know, the story goes on from there. And, uh, and looking back on it, I suppose in terms of sort of personal engagement, uh, I date uh, that morning, you know, in early 75 as, as being significant. But leading up to that, to the bigger question, the influences on me who had, who had um, impacted me in terms of uh, dealing with the Bible were all men who were actually taking passages of the Bible and actually expounding them so that I had been charmed and stirred by an approach to the Bible which uh, taught the Bible by teaching the Bible as opposed to uh, just uh, giving topical sermons on various things. Not that the topical sermons would be wrong, but but th those were the influences on me. So when I finally was unleashed, you know, in the autumn of 77 to a poor unsuspecting congregation in the west of Scotland. I didn't know I didn't know I didn't know anything else to do. So, you know, I just said, okay, we're going to study the book of Philippians together. And I started at verse one. And and that was the beginning of the adventure. And uh, the adventure, you know, continues. I mean, last week was first Samuel fifteen and uh, you know, if ever there was a book to try and dodge, that's probably one of them. But if you're going to do it that way, then it both becomes uh, the confining factor, but also becomes the the freeing factor in that you know all that we're really doing is letting this letting the scripture speak. When you and I have been around this long enough to watch so many of our friends and colleagues and maybe and maybe uh, people we don't have a close relationship with, but they they have moved farther and farther from teaching the Bible, much less expository teaching. Um, and it's, it's a number of sermons on, you know, how to's or thematic. And obviously you can teach a theme and use, you know, paragraphs of scripture to support that theme, but g give me your sense on, on two things. Uh, one, why have you stayed, uh, like, you know, teaching books of the Bible, like I prefer versus watching this trend. And then what are your observations, concerns about uh, those who move away from a biblical exposition platform? Well, you know, I I don't think I can take any credit for anything I do. Like I say, I, it never occurred to me to do it another way. And I'm, and I'm sort of, I'm, I'm sort of locked into it. I mean, I do different things. I mean, I step away from a series. If I'm invited to speak somewhere, I speak according to what they're asking me to do. But, it, but I liken it to, you know, when the, when the pipe bands in Scotland, uh, uh, appear, you know, on Friday nights in various Highland towns, um, and they all, you know, do do their thing. The fellow that intrigues me is the guy that has that huge big bass drum, and he and it sticks out the front of his chest. He usually wears a leopard skin um, jacket of some kind. And when all the other instrumentation stops, when the pipes stop or when the snare drums stop, he never stops. All he does is he just hits that boom, 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 boom. And that just keeps them walking in step. 
And so I sort of like liken what I do to the, the fellow with a big bass drum, you know, that, that all, all the other elements, which are vital elements, uh, all go on and they all go on around it. But the one thing I don't want to do is lose that keep in step baseline, if you like. And so that falls uh, to me to do. And as long as I remain faithful in the calling to that, then the other things, you know, are, are, are able to play alongside it and around it and supplement it and, and in every other way. As to those who have deviated from course, I don't want to say that some of them have lost confidence in the authority and sufficiency of the Bible, but I wonder if some of them really have. If they've begun to think that how we say it is more important than what is said, or if they begin to uh, imagine that somehow or another a consumer society that knows exactly what it wants in terms of instant gratification should be the, the drawing card and should be the, the influencing factor, uh, rather than actually uh, being prepared to say, um, no, there's a reason why when, when Paul was wrapping it up, he, he instructed Timothy very, very clearly to make sure that no matter what everybody else was doing, and remember, he, he told them, you know, there's, this is going to cost you, Timothy, but make sure you keep your head, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. And so I, I, I worry for, for the, the declension because I think it is often a first step away. And then in certain cases, as you're saying, we've seen more than a second and a third step away until, you know, the, it's not that the trumpet is given an uncertain sound. It's actually a bad sound, and um, it's, it's detrimental to the, the cause of the gospel. You, know, you and I are somewhat alike in that we're uh, students of history, and whether it's Reformation history or Puritans or in, from your heritage, uh, UK, Scottish influence. Um, the Western Church seems to me, uh, Howard Hendricks used to say, we've become uh, five miles wide and a half an inch deep. Yeah, and it, it just seems the biblical literacy is—I uh, mean, you can't use a word anymore. It's an illiteracy. People don't know the basic stories of Scripture. They don't know uh, the story of Daniel and the lion's den. For goodness' sakes, are, are you seeing this as you travel abroad? <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, it, it's funny because at our team meeting the other day, somebody was announcing. They said, I think it was last week. They said, you know, have you have you heard that this American football player has? has uh, issued a call to, to school children to bring their Bibles to school. And I said, no, I hadn't heard that. I said, but I'll tell you, I would like to issue a call for Christians to bring their Bibles to church. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> and, you know, because, you know, and, and this, this is a very small thing, but th th this is where technology actually works against certain things too. You know, you have the plus of a screen and you can shine it up and everything. But when you say to people, you know, if you look into your Bible and they have no Bible into which they look, oh, but they're bringing their smartphone um, or their uh, tablet, which of course is wonderful to have, and I have them too, but it also uh, gives you the mechanism to check your, your text or your Instagram account whenever uh, you've decided that the pastor has, uh, has lost some of, his, uh, some of his energy or you've lost some of your interest. And so... I'm increasingly becoming a sort of Neanderthal in these things, uh, Michael. I, I have to freely confess. Oh, I'm, I'm with you. And even in our little church, I encourage people because I watch them on their iPhones. I tease them. I say, 
open your Bible to Esther or get your cheater's version and click on your iPhone or your tablet and go to that <laughs> passage. Uh, but not to digress too far, but just, oh, by the way, I was reading some articles uh, about uh, the neuroplasticity and neuroscience of a book and paper interaction versus screen and tablets. Mm. And uh, they are showing uh, that there's quite a deficiency in what you accomplish with a screen. Convenience is great. I'm like you. I love the technology. I love the, the software tools for Bible study. Right. But in the, at the end of the day, you need a pen and a pad and a Bible. And, uh, you know, but anyway, we digress. Let, yep. Let's change subjects a little bit because I know uh, one of your um, areas of interest is the doctrine of providence. Yeah. Hard right turn. Um Give us the Alistair Begg uh, thumbnail, and then I'll uh, interrupt and take you other places on yeah. and talk about God's providence. I, I suppose my interest in it emerges just from Old Testament narrative. I've always known the story of Joseph, but when I when I taught through that section, uh, then I said to myself, you know, there's there's no way really to explain the trajectory of this fellow's life apart from the fact that you know, while a man's heart devises his way, the Lord directs his steps. And so I was struck, you know, by the fact that uh, uh, the willful um, animosity of his brothers was their willful animosity, and uh, the design of the Ishmaelites to purchase him was their design and so on. But in and through it all, it was clear that, you know, the purpose of God was unfolding and that God was sovereignly overruling these things. And then later on, when we did the book of Esther, and uh, I looked at the way that that thing goes, I said to myself, you know, this is, this is quite fantastic. And then, of course, as you go forward into the New Testament and you deal with the events of Jesus himself and the explanation that the apostles give, you know, that you deliver this man up uh, to be crucified, you know, at the hands of cruel men, according to, you know, the foreknowledge and purpose of God this sort of immensity of it all really appeals to me. And then on a very personal level in trying to uh, look back over the the shoulder of my short journey in life and realize, you know, for example, you just think of all the things that have had to happen in the universe just so that you and I are having this conversation at this moment in time. and And that our meeting with one another years ago was not by chance, you know, and that God is orchestrating these things, and he is employing, you know, secondary causes to uh, bring about his purposes without interfering with our freedom to make choices and so on. All of that is just fascinating to me and is at the same time, uh, you know, very humbling and also a foundation of, of deep security, you know, that is the Puritan said that, uh, that, that, that providence is a soft pillow on which to lay your head. So it's that kind of uh, thing that uh, continues to uh, stir me and move me. In uh, teaching uh, through the books of the Bible, one of the things that I'm learning and relearning is the time span, not so much the date of a book, but, for example, the period of judges being between, let's say, 310 and 400 and some years. And then you think about America Yep. Uh, 200 and uh, what is it, 30, 34 years this year. Um, 
and, and, and we, we look at our own history, number one, so poorly, number two, without appreciation of the foundation of the three branches of government and so forth and so on. And yet you look at the dark days of judges, you mentioned Esther, uh, and these time spans in some respect were extraordinarily long, covered in a few pages. Right. And in other parts, you know, 23 years is, or, or a year is covered in 20 chapters. Right. So it, it's astonishing to look at God's hand in sovereignty and providence. So help me out, help help our friends out. Uh, I don't want to wait till I'm 90 to say God meant it for good. Right, right. Uh, I, I don't want nor do I want to be the exile going, we're going to be 70 years in Babylon, suck it up. Right. Well, one of the things on a very personal level that has become apparent to me is that you know, the providences of God are seldom self-interpreting. I'm always intrigued by people who are always able to tell me, you know, I know exactly why this happened. Um, and, and I say to myself, how come they know all that? And I never know that. <laughs> um, I, I, I should at least know something approximating to that. But, um, and so I think that the, the mystery of it is part of, this, is, is part of not only the wonder of it, but also the security of it. So for example, we'll God's providence is always working actually in a variety of circumstances. So that when somebody says, uh, Pastor, why is this happening to me? Well, the answer probably is not in the this. That the this, which is my experience, is, is set within a lot of thises, if you like, in a, in a, in a lot of different ways. And part of the challenge in it for me, both in responding to things in my life that I wish were different and in seeking to help others in the process, is in, is in recognizing that Father knows best, that God actually knows what he's doing, and that what, he, what may be happening in my life may actually be very little to do with any perception that I have of it and may have a lot to do uh, with something else. You know, I was talking with a couple last week who, in circumstances... Uh, have found that their visa for a particular country has been um, set aside at least for a while. And as we talked a little more and I asked about what they were feeling like being back in the country, it came out that one of the concerns of, uh, of the girl in the, in the conversation was that uh, the members of her family were, uh, don't, don't believe as she believes and they don't really understand why she's a missionary at all. And it just dawned on us that it may well be that the year um, the, 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 the year back home, which has intrigued her parents in a way that her going has never done, may actually in the economy of God have something to do not with her and with what this year means to her, but what it may mean in the lives of people who uh, you know are around her. And maybe the last thing I would say is that, that the, the way that God is working is not only in a variety of lives and in a variety of ways and with a variety of consequences, but he's also working in such a way that uh, ultimately the Lord Jesus will be glorified. And that's where, you know, people's use and abuse of Romans 8.28 really starts to come home. You know, when we've decided that the good is whatever feels good to us, as opposed to the good being that we would be ultimately conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus, then then suddenly we're it's not going to relieve us of our burdens, or uh, certainly not of our cancers, but but it's going to give us at least a, a broader framework in which to consider uh, uh, God's fatherly care. 
Yeah, that's, that's excellent perspective. I, I often tell people, you know, we're, we're broken creatures in a broken context, and he's asked us to live faithfully, not successfully. That's good. And, and the, the challenge, whether it's the cancer or the broken marriage or the child who breaks our heart or we lose our job or injustice occurs or we're sued or, 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 is, okay, Lord, this did not happen as a surprise. Right. I don't like it. Right. Uh, I love you. I don't like this experience, but help me be. And I tell people, uh, you know, I, I live with chronic pain, as you know, and I right. tell people, they say, how do you do it? And I say, well, number one, I never ask God why. Right. But I frequently ask him how. Right. How do I live faithfully right. when I don't want to be patient with these people who have a hangnail? How do I live uh, kindly? Right. when people are unkind and i i think that's the faithful component because you know no one has the happily ever life uh maybe some do but most of us live in this illusion that if then if i do this then god will bless if i do this then god will give right and um for the western mind at least it seems to be the preoccupation at least to entitlement yeah and and then i expect god as opposed to saying wait a minute God's sovereign in his providence, things are working out according to his plan. That's it. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think if, we, if we want to be really honest in our congregations, then I don't know where I came up with this line. It's certainly not mine, but I, I have the sense that, you know, I preach Sunday by Sunday to a congregation, irrespective of how they look outside, but many of their lives are just, are just marked by quiet desperation. You know, under underneath that um, surface uh, level, uh, there's a whole lot going on in everybody's life. And the idea that, uh, that, that there are some who are living in, in a rarefied stratosphere that, that leaves them untouched by the vicissitudes of life isn't true. It's certainly not true to the Bible, and it's not true to human experience either. And, uh, and it's a bit like in, in another way entirely, you know, when the when the fellow came to Spurgeon to tell him that uh, that he had gone through, I think it was, I think he told Spurgeon he'd had two or three very good months in which he'd never sinned, and uh, <laughs> and Spurgeon and Spurgeon who was you know he was a he was a big fellow and uh, apparently he, he just he didn't say anything he just stood up from behind his desk and he came around and he stamped very heavily on the guy's foot and the guy let out an oath or something and Spurgeon said well that took care of that. <laughs> so the idea you know we want to be real cautious about these things you know i'm i'm living you know shall i be transported to the skies on flowery beds of ease no i don't think so no give up that idea right now but you know in a in a shrink wrap culture where everything is easy and new and the next iphone is around the corner and the next you know car and you know, the, uh, I mean, my perspective Christians have, and, and this is one of my concerns in the Western churches. It's, it's a, how does God care for me, meet my needs, make my life better, my marriage better, my children better, my job better, my sex life better. And, and it's almost a consumption of Christianity rather than serving this sovereign King. Yeah. Well, it's upside down, isn't it? You're absolutely right. And I mean, it's, it's the way that many of our uh, services where we gather for praise and for worship begin, you know, they, they begin with ourselves and, and our, our needs rather than God and his glory. And, you know, when people, 
when that's their experience of an encounter with, if quotes, established uh, Christianity, um, then it won't be a surprise that that they work that they work through that same process uh, uh, day by day as, as as they go through things, and that's why, you know, in many cases, you know, many of the the young people in our generation have gone off in search of the numinous. You know, they've gone in search of holiness. They've gone in search of grandeur. They've gone in search of something because they've actually realized what you're pointing out, that there's a kind of a trivialization, a kind of deconstruction of the vastness of God that they, that they don't find appealing at all. They actually find it uh, the, the reverse of that. And so the irony is to, you know, almost come full circle on where we started, you know, that the more, the more that we seek to um, embrace the culture in order to accommodate ourselves to it, uh, the less influential we become. And, you know, Lloyd-Jones was the one who always said, you know, if you trace the church throughout history, it's always been at its most effective when it has been most unlike the surrounding culture. And so every time we find that uh, our, our contemporary church life is just being absorbed by the culture, then it will give the appearance of great effectiveness, but only for a while. So when you uh, look back on uh, you and Susan's life and marriage and family and all the years you've been at uh, Parkside and uh, the ministry that he's given you to uh, speak to, what, probably three million listeners a day and uh, traveling here and there, what's what's God teaching Alistair Begg right now? Oh, I think, you know, it's, it's almost embarrassing to say, I mean, the same thing the same things that he's been teaching me all, all the way through. And that is that, uh, you know, the one to whom he looks is the one who is humble, contrite in spirit and trembles at his word, that um, he's concerned for faithfulness uh, rather than success. He's teaching me that the fact that I may have been standing up in the pulpit for all these years um, every Sunday is another scary opportunity to realize again that uh, <laughs> the God who made my mouth is is the one who has to fill it. Otherwise, I've got nothing of worth to say. Um, he's teaching me the importance of, of making sure that um, I, I really do care for the people that are entrusted to me, that... Um, that I that I do work out my own salvation with fear and trembling, you know, it, it, all of the all of the above. I mean, I, people ask me that question all the time, and and they say, you know, so what is it that I say that? Well, faithfulness, faithfulness to Christ, to the Scriptures, to my wife, my kids, my congregation, faithfulness, and and help me not to believe a lot of the silly things that people say either uh, in in uh, superficial accolades or in uh, rather damaging uh, criticisms help me to discount the highs and the lows and to live, you know, in that sort of middle ground where the people who know me best will talk to me straightforwardly and will, you know, pull me back if I'm out of control or, or give me a hug when I need some encouragement. And uh, so that's the, best, <laughs> that's the best I can do with that. Well, and, and I think it reminds all of us, and, and not, not to be, uh, you know, um, what's the new thing but it's just it's the long the long faithful life uh that you know what's in front of me today do i love 
Cindy, do you love Susan? Do I yep. care for my kids and grandkids? Am I yep. a kind neighbor? Do I show Christ when I'm in some place where uh, my anger or righteous indignation might want to emerge? Um, and, I, and I think it also frees our people. Uh, they don't have to be some super spiritual you know, person. Just be faithful. Right. Yep. with the sphere God's given you, and he will use you in ways that, uh, I, I call it imperceptible influence, that we never have, we will never really know how he's using us. Uh, it might be, you know, that you walked across the parking lot one morning and you picked up trash that was, you know, in front of the church and put it in the, the bin before you went into the church. And someone said, hey, the pastor's not above that. Yeah. You know, it, <laughs> forget the sermon you preached that day. It was, it, you know, he's a normal guy. And I, I often think of just being faithful as being the best megaphone we have today in a culture that's so confused. Yeah. Well, and that, and of course that principle that he who is faithful in little, you know, we can entrust him with more. Sure. But if we're, if, if we're not going to be faithful with a little, then uh, why would he, why would he give us any more? And uh, so the, and so the more that we're given, the more, the, the more it presses us to, to the very same thing. Yeah. I, I, I agree with that. I, I've, I'm I'm concerned by that parking lot thing though, because I, I I might be the guy that was actually throwing throwing the thing out of the window, <laughs> and you were the fella coming behind picking it off. <laughs> I wasn't going to bring that up. But yeah, yeah, did. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I only spit my gum in the grass. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Let's don't even yeah. talk about no, in the that, trees, in the trees, in the trees, in the, the trees. The, e yeah. the EPA will be after you. Yeah. Yeah. Alistair Begg, it's a delight to hear your voice. Thank you for giving us some time. Blessings on your bride and the ministry you have. And uh, safe travels, my friend. I, I look forward to our next time we see each other. Super. Thank you very much for the privilege, Michael, and uh, to the folks down there. Hopefully I'll get back to Nashville sometime and see you. Our blessings, my friend. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters. <laughs>